Warning! This episode of The Secret Cinema contains discussions of disturbing and adult content. So, heads up! The person who handed you this card is under the care of a prescription puppet designed to help create a psychological distance between himself and the negative aspects of his personality. Please treat him as you normally would, but address yourself to the puppet. Thank you. There you go. Is this some kind of a joke? No, hardly, love. Nothing funny about it. Secret Cinema, the dangerously therapeutic podcast for obscure, forgotten, and otherwise under-discussed films. I'm Paolo Carone, my co-host is Carrie Chafee, and on today's episode we're rejoined by Emily Neal to discuss Jodie Foster's psychodrama, The Beaver. Before we get into it, I just wanted to take a moment to expand on The Blacklist, a somewhat famous survey of the best unproduced screenplays of each year, and something we trash in the discussion. Now, a number of genuinely great screenplays have ended up on this list, such as Margaret, In Bruges, Wolf of Wall Street, and Inglorious Bastards. But more often than not, the screenplays on this list are being hyped out of proportion to their actual quality. If you don't believe me, consider that All About Steve, Bad Teacher, Remember Me, The Words, Due Date, That's My Boy, That Awkward Moment, Dirty Grandpa, and Sex Tape have all appeared on the blacklist, among many other risible screenplays. Anywho, here's Carrie with the plot summary. Walter Black is desperately looking for a way to communicate his pain. To the surprise of his wife, Meredith, and two sons, Henry and Porter, Walter finds solace in the form of a stuffed beaver puppet. The beaver takes the reins in both Walter's business and personal relationships. But Walter's dependence on the beaver starts to take a toll on his family and on himself. Can Walter reclaim his life and sever ties with the beaver? One of the beaver's biggest problems is its shaky grip on tone, not to mention the tonal shifts that practically give a first-time viewer whiplash. Since this is hard to illustrate in a single clip, and since a majority of the dialogue is fairly boring on its own, I'm going to make an attempt to illustrate it with two clips. In both of these clips, you'll hear the beaver, as voiced by Mel Gibson with a comical Australian accent. Mel Gibson very rarely uses his natural speaking voice during the film. In the first clip, Walter is speaking with his son, Henry, who apparently has a habit of woodworking in the garage in the middle of the night. This scene is also the genesis for the Mr. Beaver woodchopper element of the plot, which we will elaborate on in discussion, but listen and pay attention to the tone of this exchange. What does it suggest about the rest of the film? Here's that clip. Oi, what you making besides a racket then? You couldn't sleep either? Well, actually, mate, I was having a brilliant kip till you uh, started banging away. I just had this idea. Oh, yeah? Well, let's have the idea in the morning, eh? Just ten more minutes, please. Ten more minutes. All right, yes. But no more mucking about with tools when I'm not around. It's not safe. Or when your mother's asked you not to. Or at night. Or in a toilet. Or when you're climbing Mount Everest. Or picking your nose. Agreed. Agreed. There you go. Hmm. 
Can you talk to me? I like it when you talk. What do you want me to talk about? Doesn't matter, just talk. Yeah. You have a funny voice. You're quite easily entertained, aren't you? Give you a buzzsaw and a block of wood and some chattering. And now, in our second and final clip, Walter is on an anniversary date with his wife, Meredith, when the beaver feels a need to assert himself. What is the tone of this scene? Here's that clip, and we'll see you on the other side for a discussion of the beaver. It's a memory box. It's very nice, thank you. I look inside. I just... I thought it was important to remind ourselves of how things were, how, how things should be. Oh, Walter, honey, no, 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 it's okay. It's okay. Look at me. It's okay. Is this what you want? Is this progress? Christ, woman! He's suffering from depression, not amnesia. You think the problem is he can't remember these things? No. He can't go back, don't you see that? This is all in the past, and dredging it up. You know where this leads? You know where this water goes? To a 10th floor balcony, tied to a shower curtain rod. Is that what you want? Okay, this week we are talking about the beaver, and we are welcoming back friend of the podcast, Emily Mia. Hi, everybody! Emily's here! Yeah. Emily! Alright, so all of us have seen this before, so I guess we'll just do a quick run-through of opinions. Carrie, what is your opinion I of The Beaver? Start? Yeah. Uh, my opinion of The Beaver, well, I was kind of complaining before we started watching it again, because I've seen it now, like, four times, but I don't know, it walks a fine line for me, because part of me really hates watching it because I hate the beaver. But the other part of me really enjoys how silly this movie is. I would say I enjoy hate it. It's a love-hate relationship yeah. with the movie. Alright. Emily, what do you think about it? Uh well it's a it's a jarring movie and I remember being a lot more confused my first time because Carrie introduced it as a horror movie and I thought it was like a sad movie. I didn't know what to expect. This time I knew what was happening, and I can laugh a little bit more. But it's it's jarring. Yeah, it's the first time I saw it. I actually saw this in theaters, and so all you I did? all I had to go on was the trailer and just like the inherent premise seeming ridiculous. And then this came out right around the time that all the horrible stuff about Mel Gibson was starting to be very public, and so it had that loaded subtext going into it and then even still it managed to be way crazier than you expected and every time i've seen this probably about five or six times now and every time i go back to watch it i can see more and more what the original premise was where i'm like i can see where somebody once thought this was a good idea or it started with a good from a good emotional place or a relatable place and then it just through, like, bad screenwriting coupled by, like, really bad directing, uh, we ended up in a place where 
what the end product is is so far from something that is like useful emotionally or it's like and the only real function of the movie now is this, this like curiosity where you watch it to see how it fails or watch it to see how baffling the experience is it's like there's no real way to watch this and like actually watch it as just a movie yeah there's not a broad lesson there well there kind of is but it's done so poorly and confusingly that there is some sort of lesson being attempted. It's just hard to say based on the evidence given what the movie actually believes the lesson is. There's also a couple things where it's like, the movie believes this is the lesson, but the tone is different from what you would expect for that lesson to be conveyed. And not in like an experimental or artistic way, just that it like, everyone agreed that depression was bad and no one really knew how to get to a point where everyone could agree with that. And then they just chose all the worst possible ways to make that point and ended up with something that, like, you can't empathize with it. You can't, like, I mean, you can kind yeah. of empathize. There's no real audience stand-in except for maybe the teenage son. I feel like at the very outset, when it does the intro narration where Walter Black is this depressed man and they're kind of describing, like, the symptoms of his depression... And it's like, I can really relate to that. I've had that sort of depression before where I'm just like completely immobilized. It doesn't seem like anything I can try will make me feel better because it's not a problem with my situation as much as like the depression is about who I am. But the movie doesn't really care to develop Walter, the depressed person, enough where you really understand his depression. Like, in like it's not like... And this is an extreme comparison, but it's not like two days, one night, where you get like a really first person perspective on someone's depression and insecurity, and you really are there. You're not experiencing the depression, but you might as well. You're like in the passenger seat of that car. Yeah. And this, it's like you're in the trunk, and you kind of hear some of it through the back seat. And it's not really, like, you don't, you have to like <laughs> That's presume. That's a good, good analogy. Yeah, you have to presume so much about it that it's not like, it doesn't make it an empathetic portrait of depression. It keeps well, yeah, depression. Well, yeah, because the movie's not about Walter and yeah. his depression. It's about the beaver. Yeah. Do you want to set up the beaver part of the beaver? Like, we, we, we know that Walter is depressed and he has a family. And his family is, like, distant from him because he is so depressed. So how does the beaver... And it sounds like he's been depressed for years because... The older son says to Jodie Foster, like, you finally kicked him out and you're going to let him back in? It's taken you years. Yeah. Okay, so the beaver. So Mel Gibson's character, Walter, he, doesn't he get really drunk and he's like wandering through a parking lot and he comes upon this dumpster and there's this beaver puppet in the dumpster. Yeah, he's like throwing his like personal belongings away. I can't even fully remember back to the beginning that of this movie. That was when he was kicked out of the house. And yeah, he, I think oh, he was yeah. like, based, I think he might have been set on committing suicide at that point. Yeah, because doesn't he find the puppet and then he goes and he tries to kill himself and then he falls and fails to kill himself. Yeah, and okay, it's almost as the the setup for like a Cameron Crowe movie. Yeah, actually, let's talk about that suicide scene because it, it is the lead into the Beavers' introduction. But it's so it's the first moment in the movie where it's given away that Jodie Foster has no ability to rein in tone 
or at least has no idea what the tone yeah, should be. Yeah, maybe, uh, maybe a better way to start for this movie is to talk about Jodie Foster. Yeah. Now, everyone Does everyone know who Jodie yeah. Foster is? <laughs> Two-time Oscar-winning actress. Um, Taxi Driver. Contact. Silence of the Lambs. <laughs> Pantagroom. The Accused. She's like, been famous forever. A yeah, long time. Since she's she maybe, was like, what, five, six? Really young. Really young, yeah. Uh, she was nominated for an Academy Award for Taxi Driver, and I think she's like 12 in Taxi Driver? Yeah, she's like really that. young. She's really young. So she's... She's been in the biz She's for a lifer. A while. She's like a legit Hollywood lifer, and... I found out that she was supposed to be the lead in Double Jeopardy. Weird. But so and she dropped out, and so Ashley Judd got substituted. Which, that's way, like, that would have been a way weirder movie. That's way more appropriate as like an Ashley Judd movie. It's still a bad movie. It would have been a bad movie with either person. Yeah. but I buy Ashley Judd in that role way more. Yeah, I don't think um, I would have bought Jodie Foster and Bruce Greenwood. No, but, but it kind of makes sense to me for her to have directed this screenplay that nobody else wanted, and maybe she's in that bubble where. She's like, well, I'm Jodie Foster. I'm not going to fail. Or maybe I'll fail, but I'm never not going to get work. So I can do this. Yeah, that's a good way of looking at it. She yeah. had a lot of support. Well, and watching watching this, I kept trying to think about Money Monster, which I, I know she's directed other movies, right? She's directed other stuff besides The Beaver. And this was like her first uh, big movie. And then she's directed a little bit of television. She directed a couple episodes of Orange is the New Black. Oh, wow. I, th I could have sworn she directed some other movies, but I guess that's it. Okay, so then, if The Beaver and Money Monster are the big and she has And she has a new one coming out in 2017, too. Oh, boy. Well, okay, so but with these two, it kept striking me that, like, the only real autorial quality to her movies, besides her absolute inability to reign in tone, is her, like, very liberal politics. And there's a lot of that in the way in which like mental health is trying to be handled but it's not because they don't nobody who wrote this or I mean, and she didn't when who when she directed it they didn't they clearly did not understand psychology they don't understand depression maybe the writer was depressed and he understands it but he is also not a good writer and so he didn't convey it well and then she definitely does not understand it because that's the whole thing with tone she does not ever have a scene. It goes where you, back to what yeah. Emily was saying about how I told her it was a horror movie, but this movie could really be called a comedy. It could be called a family drama. It could be called a horror movie. I mean, it could be any of those things. Yeah. Well, and it starts off obviously the maybe the bleakest parts are at the very end, which I'm, I know we'll get to, <clears> you, <throat> or this beginning part where he's trying to hang himself in the on the shower curtain. And the music doesn't... It's like, it's not quite melancholy. It's, yeah, it's, it's like... like it's like French it's carnival like, music yeah. almost. Yeah. And then, and then you have that sad as fuck Radiohead song playing at the end <laughs> when, when he's going to be fine. Like, that's kind of like... But the, the beaver's not fine, Emily. Yeah, but why are we mourning the death of the beaver at all? Yeah. Because the movie's about the beaver. It's not about Walter. That's yeah. what I think is the problem with this movie is it is about the beaver, and it's not about Walter. And a good screenplay would have had this movie be about Walter and his fight with the beaver. Well, and that's what I'm trying to say about the liberal politics of this movie, is that if it wasn't so liberal, 
it would take a tougher stand on some of these characters, but it instead tries to do this thing where everybody is supposedly sympathetic. Like, 100%, whatever they're going through is, like, worth taking seriously, regardless of whether or not it's a man who's in, like, suicidal depression or, say, a valedictorian who is secretly an artist. <laughs> like, both of those things are, like, neither one of those people are told to, like, snap out of it by the movie itself. It's, like, both of them are treated as, like, like, yeah, some... Life is just hard for some people. Sometimes you're poor. Sometimes you're crazy. Sometimes you just got art. Every everyone has a hard life. Like it's like that sort of. Sometimes you don't get to go to college. Yeah, and it's like, I like listen. I really respect a movie that's like sympathetic toward all of its characters, but you have to have like real believable people with relatable problems if you're going to do that. Otherwise, it just comes off as really. But trite. do you do you think that that's more a problem with the screenplay or a problem with how Jodie Foster directed it? I that's very much a thing that could have been written in, but a good director would be able to put in. Like we, this is what we talk about with say William Friedkin. This is a thing that William Friedkin could do very well, which is like film something to put in that emotional ambiguity where he's like, I want you to think about it, but I'm not going to tell you what to think about it. Just, I want you to be aware of how crazy what is happening is happening. Yeah. And Jodie Foster doesn't seem to ever, like there's No, scenes, she totally normalizes yeah, it. Normalizes it in a way that makes it weirder. Like makes it yeah. actively weirder when it well, shouldn't yeah. be. That's like that Roger Ebert review I read for this movie. He gave this movie two and a half stars, and he said, like, yeah, the movie is good, the performances are good, but ultimately the reason this movie is bad is because it's just not believable. Yeah. Like, there's just no no point where you suspend belief and remember it's not a movie. Yeah, too, even the absurdity of him becoming as famous as he was. Yeah. Yeah, Beaver. Yeah, where he's on, like, GQ. Yeah, it's with the Beaver. Like, Did you see that movie post? The magazine cover is him, like, like uh, from behind, and the beaver, like, peeking out over his shoulder. <laughs> yeah. Because men who read GQ, they want to see that. Well, and also, just, like, he's on The Daily Show, like, with Jon Stewart. The Daily Show, a show that makes fun of everything. And a man is on there with a puppet, and he can only talk to the puppet, and The Daily Show just is, like, treats it normally. Like, that's the level to which... Everybody embraces this clearly mentally ill man. Like, no, I, I can't think of another, like, even being there is way more believable in terms of everybody embracing. Well, like, Emily brought up the good point of, like, this is what's happening with Trump right now. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> See, Matt Lauer is bad with follow-up questions. Yeah, he really like, is. You're wrong. This is, this is all wrong. Nobody should be on. Yeah, this there's show. there's this part in the movie where Matt Lauer is somehow interviewing Walter and the Beaver, and Walter or the Beaver rather goes on this huge long rant about like not feeling like you belong and waking up every day and thinking that you're not good enough and everyone needs to just come together and accept themselves. And then Matt Lauer's next line after he says all that is, "It's good to have you here." Yeah. <laughs> Let's go to commercial. What does this have to do with the toys that you're trying to sell? <laughs> yeah. Also, this is, they set up pretty well that it's a frame of reference of about six weeks. Yeah. Was it? Yeah. Oh, man. Because he said that this toy that his company, he's going to save his company with, is uh, in the expo in six weeks where they're going to premiere this toy. 
So it's about maybe like, yeah, like a month and a half. So for a month and a half, he has the beaver for every social interaction he has. And it takes a month and a half before the like big meltdown scene where someone finally is like, listen, you gotta stop with the beaver. Like everyone totally embraces it for that long. It's, Maybe we can just, like, I'll just draw another, yeah, parallel to Trump. Like, nobody's calling him out on his shit. They're just going to let it happen, go on and on because they must think it down to some level. It has to be a joke. Yeah, like... Or it's or it's just fascinating. It's yeah. like a, I mean, that's the other thing. You're is watching it's like, someone melt down. You're watching the spectacle of it. But this yeah. is another thing what I'm saying about this movie being, like, pointedly liberal is like this like fantasy world that ex- totally accepts this guy like it yeah do- doesn't this movie acts like social media doesn't exist yeah it's what when did this come out i saw it in college so it, it came like... out in 2011 but it was filmed in 2009 yeah so it like and this script was on the blacklist in 2008 man so yeah it's <laughs> facebook exists the internet exists people yeah. Online with mental illnesses who talk about their mental illnesses all the time exists by the point this movie. Oh, like, yeah. Like, Sarah Palin existed during this time. Yeah. So. There's, like, so much that... There's just, like, a filtering out of all reality and then trying to make a movie explicitly about very ugly and uncomfortable human emotions. It's, like, such a weird thing. It's, like, if they tried to make a movie in the 30s about depression. It's, like, that... It's not the same, but it's, like... Tonally, in terms of how adult they are and handy. Yeah, the beaver wouldn't have been like Australian in the 30s version. He would have been like, like an Irishman. Hey, see, don't you see what I'm up to? <laughs> oh, it would have been terribly racist. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, he w- or, like, what's interesting is the beaver is not named. Yeah, that I noticed that too. But I. The most important char- character, I should say, in the movie. The titular is, character. Yeah, yeah, is an unnamed puppet. Yeah. The beaver. Which just makes it just sound graphic. Less personable, too. Yeah, and it really, because they keep calling it yeah, the beaver... Yeah, you can't get over the sexual reference. Yeah, no, why would, why would you, if you're going to choose any animal, choose an animal that's known for being genitalia? Not to mention, like, an actor who around the time was famous for calling a female police officer sugar tits. Like, yeah. there's one called the beaver that he, like, has, has his on hand, his hand. In. Yeah, like, there's so much... Yeah, they said around the time that they started promoting this movie was around the time where all the, like, battery and sexual assault stuff about Mel Gibson was coming out. Yeah, and so it's, like, it like at the very beginning, it does suggest, like, oh, we're gonna try to understand the mind of somebody... It almost seems like it's edited to play up that comparison of, like, you can't even imagine what it's like to be Mel Gibson. And he's this troubled guy, and we're going to get into the mind of, like, someone like that and understand how. And then the movie totally abandons that, like, (laughs) through line uh, once it starts focusing on, like, Anton Yelkin's character. And that, I think that really is... That's the part that just breaks the illusion of the movie for me. Yeah, it... It really... Even though that is, like, somewhat more interesting, <laughs> character-wise. Oh, yeah, because you're watching Anton Yelkin and Jennifer Lawrence play off each other, and both of them are really... 
They're good. Great. They're like, yeah. like they both are like R.I.P. Yeah. <laughs> Recipes. Uh, uh, oh, and he wrote R.I.P. in this movie. It's yeah. right, right. He should have <laughs> just wrote his name. You should like in After Effects make a gif of him spray painting R.I.P. and uh, oh. <laughs> and then Jennifer Lawrence coming with spray painting. <laughs> spray yeah. painting. Okay, over it. But like Jennifer Lawrence as like likable female romantic interest is like. That's in her wheelhouse. Yeah, definitely. She's pretty comfortable with that role. That's Silver Lining's playbook, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. And then Anton Yelke, oh yeah, troubled uh, romantic lead. Yeah, that's who exactly like, Who has to learn how to dance? Yep. Or no, does she teach him how to dance? She... I can't remember how I, that movie plays out. Yes, she Sorry. was the dancer. But then, I can't um, remember the playbook for that movie. <laughs> there's a silver lining to that joke. Um, but Anton Yelkin's... His thing was basically playing, like, young, likable, but slightly nervous or anxiety-ridden man. Like, that's yeah. what he is in Green Room, and that's what he is in Fright Night, and that's, like, the only... Charlie Bartlett. Charlie Bartlett. The only thing he's not that is based on the Star And there's Trek always, movies. like, a there's always like a bad boy side to him. Because in this movie, yeah. the bad boy side is he writes papers for other people in... Charlie Bartlett, he sells prescriptions. Yeah. In, uh, in, uh, Fright, Fright Night, Night, he's, well, he's doing all that, like... He's, like, spying on his neighbor. Because he's trying to kill a vampire. Uh, and then... It's, like, a very safe thing for him to be bad with, is writing papers for kids. Yeah. Like, yeah. But again it, again, it ties into that, like, liberal, nice world where it's, like, the two kids that we see would have, like, that have these bad sides of their personality. One is so smart that he can write from anybody else's point of view and then the other one is that she's a great artist or a great in quotes artist but, but her brother's dead but her brother's dead where it's like man they couldn't be like lower stakes uh bad things in their life and they also they kind yeah, of dropped... what's their conflict that they don't understand each other is that it their conflict is that well who between anton... between anton and jayla no their only conflict is that he's like you gotta talk about your dead brother and then she's, and like, she's no. like, no! Otherwise, there's no con. The point is, there's no conflict between them. The point is that they. Uh, the point in this movie is that every person has their thing they struggle with, and because they struggle with it alone, it's way harder, and you need to struggle with it with other people. I, I guess mean, if I had to say what the, the. Yeah. That's what the theme of the movie is. Well, that, yeah, that's Jennifer Lawrence's uh, graduation speech in a nutshell. Yeah. Well, she and. And, um, rely on others. Porter, Porter, or Anton, they never actually address the fact that they've both had significant losses within their family. Yeah. yeah. He has already kind of mourned and moved on from his father as though he has died, and yeah. she lost a brother, and they never, it's like, the audience will just see that that happened, and they'll understand it without actually... Yeah, they'll relate to this idea of just, like, completely closing yourself off from loss. <laughs> like, which is, again, it's like, you gotta kind of illustrate that in a more than just, like, a vaguely symbolic way for the audience to be on board with that. I'm trying to think of, like, a movie that's about loss that does a much better job. Like, what is, well, like, a very don't obvious... you really like the movie um, Ordinary People? Yes, actually, I, I thought about that during the end, because it's about someone who loses their older brother and how, like, the feelings of guilt carry out. But that, again, is, like, a much more microscopic observation of that. And yeah, that it doesn't, movie is really heavy. Yeah, it, but it's, like, amazing because 
it really treats it with seriousness. And that movie has comedy beats and it has yeah. like excessively dark suicide moments. And it is able to veer between them because real life veers between them. You just have to present it believably. Yeah, the director has a, a handle on the tone. Yeah, Robert Redford. Robert, God, yeah, Robert Redford, who is... Robert Redford directed that? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. I know. Oh, Robert. I know. It's like the only good movie he directed. But yeah. It's like, I know, it's it's really great. Uh, I could go off on how great Ordinary People is, but that'd be getting outside the point. So... Well, yeah, about. isn't it in your top ten? Yeah. Since it's, we're talking about tone, when do you guys think it took a turn? Because I'm trying to think of, like, that moment where the first time I watched it, I suddenly realized, oh, yeah, this is something terrible is going to happen. I think, because uh, for me, there's, like, several moments where I'm just completely caught off guard by the tonal shift. Because it seems safe. It's yeah. a good question, Emily. Yeah, because if I was going to say the moment where it feels like it's going to go back, like, off the rails, it's further back. But the first tonal shift, I would say, is when the beaver is introduced. Because it starts... Not even when he tries to, like, hang himself? No, well, because, like, that, yeah, that's the first moment where they're, like, the, something's wrong with the tone, but it's it, it, up until that point, it's at least dark, and he's, like, talking about being depressed, and he leaves, and he goes to commit suicide, and then the music starts, and you're like, hmm, this is weird music for this. And then the beaver shows up, and you're like, whoa, we've been in a way darker movie up to this point. And that, but the, the moment where it gets, like, to the point where I'm like, oh, this, where, as we call it, it becomes a Stephen King movie, is the moment where, after the dinner between Mel Gibson and Jodie Foster, where she's like, I don't want you, I don't want the puppet, I want you, and look at all these pictures, and he has that, like, Memory box. The memory box nervous breakdown. After that, like, the pup, it, it's as if the movie has, like, changed what his mental illness is, and the disassociative identity dis disorder has come over Mel Gibson, and the puppet is, like, fully a different personality. Like, there's the scene where Mel Gibson is laying in bed, he can't even get up, and somehow his arm is like, get out of bed! Get it's like having, like, two fully different ranges of experience in, like, this one body at once. And after, from that point on, you're like, this this is definitely not, like... Because, uh, okay, uh, stepping back a little bit, another example of how different those two parts are is when Walter has to explain to people the beaver puppet, which is... Because uh, it's very he weird. He hands him the card. He hands him this card that says, like, Walter is under the guidance of a prescription puppet uh, that will help him deal with all this stuff and everything. And he tells people it's because of this doctor he's been seeing, but it later comes out that he hasn't seen the doctor at, in, all. at all. And we know that he just found it in a dumpster anyway. So it's clear the implication is that Walter either, like, at some, some form of Walter had to for make these cards with the intentional plan of tricking people into believing this. There's, like, premeditation clear to this. Unless they're saying, like, the beaver made these. And, like, Walter has just been, like... His, he has, like, a ghost personality that is just, like, given all well, rights the over way, to... Well, the way I... And it's so weird, because I've been thinking a lot about this lately or being uh, confronted with this a lot is it seems like he's experiencing some kind of like dissociative period with the beaver. Yeah. But the beaver is taking over. Yeah. That's, that's kind of, I feel like that's what happens at the end is he, 
he tries to reclaim his body and mind from the beaver. Well, and I was trying to think of it in terms of if they chose, like, a less insane metaphor, let's say you tell the same story, but instead of him finding a beaver puppet, he begins to become, like, an alcoholic. And at first, he's, like, he drinks and he's, like... Like, I am a little looser, and I think I got these crazy ideas. And uh, people are like, wow, he's seems like a weird. He kind of seems like just slurring his speech. His clothes are messy, but he's coming up with these ideas that he was never vocal about before yeah. and all this thing. And everyone's like, wow, you're really great. And they, like, encourage his alcoholism. And then in the end, like, his alcoholism destroys him because he can't... He didn't actually solve his problem. He just buried it with another one. Like, that's essentially what it seems like they're trying to do with the beaver is the beaver is the thing that you use to not actually deal with your problem. It's the, it's the substitute, but how is that, does that metaphor play out where the thing is like, I am you and I will will fight you. (laughs) Like, like, like it's like basically as if like, if the, if we extended this into like the alcohol metaphor, it's as if like, like he called called Joey Foster and like a bottle of vodka spilled onto him. And then like, Lit, like a lighter went off and like lit his face on fire. He's like literally battling with alcohol. <laughs> like that's what it like the end of the movie basically extends the metaphor into. And so yeah, it doesn't fit at all. It, like, well, and so I, I want to go back to Emily's point about like why is it a beaver? Because I was just thinking what you were talking about. Wouldn't it have been way more poignant if? Even if they wanted to stick with, like, the fact that the puppet inspires a, a toy at the at Walter's job or whatever, wouldn't it have been more poignant if the puppet was, like, a tool man? Like, a handyman? Yeah. So it was an actual person puppet, but it was a puppet who had, like, a trade. Yeah, well, like, a robot or something. I mean, I mean, oh, yeah, or a robot or, yeah, something. Some sort of humanoid. Because of... How preposterous the beaver sounds, <laughs> let alone looks. Yeah. What a like, good word. He's he's just a furry little beaver on his hand. Because it seems so innocent, I actually did think, I was like, so this is gonna have a positive ending. Like, Yeah, like it's a yeah. therapy tool. And they set it up, he works at a toy company. Yeah. And Jodie Foster designs roller coasters. These are, yeah. these are joke jobs. <laughs> yeah. <They're> like, <laughs> I totally it's, forgot she designed It's not, well, it's not serious at all. Like, I, sure, yeah, he runs yeah. a toy company. Okay, sure. And then, how do you think they met? Do you think they met at, like, a, like, a fun expo? Well, and like, at a carnival? Well, and on, and at note, too, like, the little, the littlest kid, when he has problems, he deals with it by, like, going to the wood shop and making tiny wood sculptures and things, which is not like, oh, I'm so worried for that boy, he's making wood things. It's like, oh, no, this will have a positive end. Everything does seem like, like, so low stakes and cutesy yeah. that there's no, like, the only way it should end is by people learning a positive lesson. And so, yeah, you're right. Yeah, the fact that it goes as ugly as it does in the end is, like, really not set up at all. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. No, by I the do. way, I did learn that Jodie Foster did direct a couple movies before this. That's what I thought. Didn't she do Nell? No, she didn't do Nell. She's just in it. Jake and Jake and Jake and Bay. I always remember the Gilmore Girls episode. (laughs) Anyway, she directed a movie that I actually remember really liking. I haven't watched in quite a while, but I had it on VHS called Home for the Holidays. 
Which oh. is Robert Downey Jr. is in. And he plays like the gay brother. And Holly Hunter is the main character. Which Holly Hunter and Jodie Foster might as well look exactly the same for yeah. like, the yeah. roles they take in movies. And like her accent. Them and then <laughs> ha- Helen Hunt. All three yes. of them could like stand in for each other in my opinion. But I want to go back to Jodie Foster's directing style. You can... You can end about that. Oh, I will. Don't worry. (laughs) (laughs) But I want to go back to Jodie Foster's directing style and talk about the beaver versus money monster. So that's the other thing is, I think in general, Jodie Foster doesn't know how to do tone because money monster was so, it was so much better than the beaver in my opinion. It was way more entertaining, and it and it. Actually, it had higher stakes. It had higher stakes, and it actually had like a plot. You know, like there were there was like a three act structure almost. Yeah, it introduced like right away, like within fifteen minutes. I feel like we're in the hostage situation. Yeah, and it also but the, thing the with, crazy stuff in that too is yeah. Like, but the yeah. money, <laughs> the thing with Money Monster was again, there's like no tone set. Like it's supposed to be this. This hostage situation movie where this guy who is on network television, um, someone sneaks into the soundstage with like a gun and a bomb and they have to negotiate with him while they're on the air. And the movie plays as a comedy, it plays as a thriller, it plays as a drama, it plays as like a screwball movie at some points. Well, like, and it's introduced as like... George Clooney is the host, and Julia Roberts is his producer, and they have this, like, relationship. It's not, like, a romantic tension one, but it's, like, the, oh, you're the dumb TV host, and I'm the smart person. Basically, like, the 30 Rock uh, setup where Julia Roberts is Tina Fey, and he is Jenna Maroney. Yeah. And it's, like, it starts that, and then that dynamic is interrupted by a hostage situation. Yeah. (laughs) But then the hostage situation is occasionally interrupted by... The boner cream subplot in which George Clooney has this like assistant who he needs to test out boner cream to and, see if it works. And so, like later, deep into the hostage situation, it cuts the scene where his assistant is like fucking some intern in a closet in the news station because he has like a crazy boner because of his boner. Cream. Well, and there's a part in Money Monster <laughs> where the guy who is the the hostage holder? Yeah, that. The hostage taker. There hostage so taker. So could you say, before I forget, maybe Jodie Jody Foster's job as a roller coaster designer is meant to be a metaphor for how she directs the <laughs> Because even... But would you say that the beaver was a roller coaster ride? I never knew where to look. One, when the beaver's talking, you don't know, you like look back and forth between the beaver I and never, Walter. I never looked at the beaver. I hated looking at him. <laughs> <laughs> it was a little gross. His, he just was, every time I looked at him, I was like, you're so dirty. Well, it's also because, like I said, he had those human eyes, which made it, yeah. like, uncanny valley. Like, he, he got had, like, out of a dumpster. I just kept thinking, like, that's so gross. Yeah. He's, he's got to be all grimy and, like, you know, mothballs. Yeah, there's never, or, like, you ever, did you ever leave a stuffed animal in your garage on accident and then, like, a rat builds a nest in its stomach? No. <laughs> That's what I'm thinking of when I think about the beaver. Yeah, it's, it's like, ugh. Just one scene where somebody was like, oh, like, smelled the beaver. Like, would have just yeah, you <laughs> added so Emily, much realism. Smell the beaver. Yeah. Emily asked at one point if Mel Gibson's hand must have stunk because it was always inside of the beaver. Because oh, yeah. it was after they had sex and he probably got really sweaty. And the beaver was breathing like he had 
than the one having sex. You'd yeah. be like, <gasps> so, but then that almost makes you wonder. I know we're getting way off from what you have to say, but does when he has sex with his with Jodie Foster while wearing the beaver, does he imagine he is the beaver having sex? Like, does he imagine he's like? A, like, in the furry sense of the word, is he an anthropomorphic beaver in his mind, and he's, like, fucking Jody his Foster. old his old body's wife, and is, is just like, oh, I'm the beaver. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, like, we, we, it like, goes back that, to the tulpas thing. Yeah, well, and there's that scene where, like, she, they're having sex, yeah. and she's clearly getting, like, she, he's going down on Jodie Foster, and he has the beaver puppet on, and we don't see. So it's it raises the question of like, is Mel Gibson going down on Jodie Foster, or is the beaver going down? <laughs> is it like the, the beaver puppet? Going down on is the it like beaver? the puppet's mouth just like opening and closing <laughs> on her, her uh, <laughs> I don't know. It shows her enjoying it, so it probably is real. But like, also, but this movie. You, in theory, it could be like, oh yeah, he just, he is that beaver, and so he knows how to work, like, the teeth on her clitoris or something. Uh, I don't know, sorry. You're getting really graphic. <laughs> I know, I just like, you I can't about this I've seen this movie a lot. <laughs> I don't know, I don't know the answer to that. Well, think about it for your teacher in a moment. <laughs> <laughs> but, okay, going back to what I was saying about Money Monster, when the hostage taker, they want to calm him down you know, to, to reason with him. And so one of the things they do is they bring in his pregnant girlfriend. And you think she's going to be like, oh, baby, why did you do this? Like, you're we're so much better than this. Just give up. Instead, she comes in and she's like, fuck you, you <laughs> stupid piece of shit. Why you always cry when we have sex. Like, why are you doing this? And you're the, so the police stupid. are like, shut off the feet. Cut the feet. <laughs> like, it's like actively <laughs> like a weird Jodie Foster moment where it's like why did why did that happen in the movie yeah and it's genuinely when it happens it's hilarious because you do not see it coming but no. it's also like what is the tone of this movie yeah what is going like, on why would why would you have that by the way the the pregnant girlfriend is Fang from our first episode yeah uh, my, my soul, soul to take. take I think that was the second episode it's our first it just the first one we recorded but the second released no it's the the we released brain damage first. Yeah. But it's still, brain damage is our third. You were both technically right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, <laughs> what else? What else? I mean, we kind of gone scattershot, but what, what are the well, big okay. topics? We so, haven't really talked about Jennifer Lawrence. So like I said, this movie came out in uh, 2011. It was on the blacklist in 2008, which the Hollywood blacklist is this list that started around 2004, of the most liked scripts that weren't yet being produced. The more I looked into it, the kind, the more I realized it's kind of a bullshit thing because most of the screenplays on the list have eventually been produced well, and been, like, a big deal. Well, and that's the thing is, the idea behind the blacklist, We I think we've talked about this in a different episode. One, one other screenplay we've talked about was a blacklist one. But the blacklist at its core is... Um, at the end of the year, what were really great screenplays that were getting shopped around but didn't get instantly picked up? And usually that ties into, like, budgetary issues or they're just like, it sounds good, but it doesn't fit in with what we need to make this year to get our uh, yeah. bottom line and across. So 
And, well, and so they eventually, yeah, it's just like at the end they'll be like, these had great gimmicks. It's almost always, that's what it boils down to, is these 10 screenplays had amazing gimmicks or premises, and it's um, it's shocking that no one picked them up considering. Yeah, like then, the same year that The Beaver was on this list, which The Beaver was at the top of the list, Yeah. but another movie that was on the list, which I have seen, was Butter. Have you ever seen yeah. Butter? Oh, Did yeah. you and I watch that together, Emily? I think we did. Maybe. I but, think we watched it at your old apartment. But that movie is about, um, like, butter sculpting competitions. Yeah. Well, and that's what I was getting to with the blacklist, is that pretty much if you go back uh, pretty far, you'll see that the, the, the screenplays that are on the blacklist are almost always terrible. When they actually come out, they are always bad. Yeah. And it's like one of those things where you, if you think about it, yeah, the blacklist is looking for gimmicks. It's not like going through and like, oh, the screenplay is great. It tells a very familiar story, but the dialogue in it, it's like no one gives a shit about that in Hollywood. They're not looking for that. There were some things on the list that have done well and are good movies, but yeah, for the most part, they're like pretty shitty movies. Like the one that I saw that I didn't realize was ever on the blacklist was Spotlight. But the reason that Spotlight was on the blacklist probably is because there probably wasn't a huge studio at first that was like, yeah, let's make this journalistic movie about pedophilia. Yeah, takes on the Catholic Church, uh, is about newspapers, which no one gives a shit about anymore. Oh yeah, and that that definitely was a great movie, but like I said, it it was on there weirdly because it was well-written, not because it was a gimmick. A couple of the other movies on that list in the past have been like Juno and Argo and um, The Revenant was on the list. So yeah, there are some like high-class movies that are on the list, but The Beaver was on the list, and originally, you know who was originally supposed to play Mel Gibson's role? The Beaver role? Bill Murray? Jim Carrey? Yes! Oh, wow. No, I looked it up. Jim Carrey, and then the other person was Steve Carell. And I actually was thinking a lot about how Steve Carell would have played it. Yeah. Well, Steve Carell, because he has the improv background, uh, and also, there's like a lot of crossover stuff with Michael Scott in this yeah. role. But he could have done it, re- he would have done way better. It would have been a much more I, yeah, appropriate I don't, and, take. And he does, he does serious movies well. Yeah. Well, and, but I also think that the reason that Jim Carrey and Steve Carell would have been better, in my opinion, is because they both have comedic leanings. Yeah. They can play like a straight story, but they have that comedic background, whereas Mel Gibson doesn't really have like a... Yeah, he does. Yeah, but he's... It's not his strength. The biggest difference is people don't like him. Like, he's not as likable. I don't think he's as likable as Gary or... Well, you guys guys are both coming at it from the point of view of now. Whereas, you have to remember, before all the horrible shit came out, before Passion of the Christ, Mel Gibson was somebody that everybody loved. Everyone thought he was hilarious because the Lethal Weapon movies are thought of as like action comedies. Yeah. And so it's like, the, I, a studio making this would have seen him in a comedic role as like a sure thing. Like it, it, it actually, and if you've seen any of the movies he's directed, uh, even Braveheart, Braveheart and Apocalypto both have like bold-faced comedy beats. Like Apocalypto has that blowjob joke like, yeah. right out of the gate. And uh, he like God, Apocalypto is so good. I think just the issue is that Mel Gibson 
when he plays Depression, he's playing Depression like he played it in Lethal Weapon. And Lethal Weapon, he does have comedy beats, but he's also suicidally depressed. Yeah, he's like a and nihilist, so, right? And, yeah, and so he, like, reverts to, like, oh, uh, he actually has, he has the muscle memory to do that performance, and so he does that performance, and Jodie Foster, being a weak director, never was like, hmm, you might be too depressed for the tone I'm going for. She's yeah. like, you're doing a great job, I'm doing a great job, everyone's doing a great job. Steve <laughs> Carell played suicidal really well in yeah. Little Miss Sunshine. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and isn't he really sad in Dan in real life? Yeah. 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 But, uh, yeah, I just... And I Foxcatcher. Kind oh, of. well, yeah, that's a whole different... <laughs> kind of depression. Yeah. <laughs> that's rich, hubris uh, depression. Yeah. Narcissism uh, depression. Yeah. But I didn't really like Walter as a character anyway. No. no. Like, but you know what? I being depressed, I was... he has no traits. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's what I was just about to say is, I think the worst character for me was Jodie Foster's character. I, what was her name? Meredith? Yeah. She's like a non-character. Yeah. I know, and it's really, like, she's the she director, forgot. and she couldn't build up her own part. Yeah, yeah like, I think part of that is the screenplay. She has, like, no character development whatsoever no. in the movie. No, even when she goes out to dinner with um, with him for their anniversary, which she is really excited about, yeah. the first thing she brings up is the weather. Yeah, yeah. they talk well, about the weather. And I was thinking about that, too, and I was like, God, they had to drive all the way there, and she is only now bringing up the weather, so, like, did they just not even talk at all? Like, <laughs> Wasn't on screen. Didn't yeah. happen. Doesn't matter. But um, the other thing that I learned about this movie is, so it was filmed in New York, but many, and I think Emily brought this up in in when we were watching it, but many studios passed on this movie, and I think that's another reason it was on the blacklist is because they passed. Because of the ending of the movie. Yeah. Because they Every were like, studio oh, was called The Beaver. This is a comedy, right? No. no, it's not a comedy. Yeah, and so if Jodie Foster, she said that if she had just changed the ending, then she could have gotten this movie made really quickly. But because she stuck to the original ending, she couldn't, she had to like shop around and and fight to get it made. And again, it's so funny because what we're talking about with the ending is the ending because of how terribly uh set up it is is the main is like really more than anything the thing that destroys the movie in the end but it is like it is the ultimate payoff yeah it does it is memorable it is yeah. absolutely a memorable ending but this is not like it's kind of the only reason to keep watching the movie yeah because if it ends if you started the movie and you're like i'm not into this you know and shut it off if you but if you start off knowing he's going to build a beaver-sized coffin and <laughs> In his workshop. And cut off his arm with a circular saw in his garage. It would have to be so fucking painful. <laughs> and gory. It would shoot blood everywhere. Yeah. And that's where his, like, son uh, goes. And so he's, like, permanently... Like, they, they don't actually state this, but it's the place where his son goes and makes that, like, brain for him. And so Aww. his son would have to go into the garage where his dad cut off his hand and would just be like, uh, like, all right, don't go crazy. <laughs> don't, don't become your father. And that's another reason this movie it doesn't work tonally is because if it was a horror movie, they would have played up that scene way more or, like, made it way more scary. But they kind of they kind of glossed over. Out. Yeah, they don't show him cutting off his arm. They're graphic about the coffin building, yeah. where he yeah. like puts his hand with the beaver <laughs> inside of it in the coffin to make sure it fits. 
And he's he like, takes, yep, perfect size. He takes great care. And Dude, then too. Like, do you think he's going to wake up from after he cuts his arm off and then is going to Put gently it place it in the coffin? <laughs> and just like, how does, I, I really, again, how does this disassociative disorder work for him where he can do all this stuff and the beaver does not figure out? Like, when, like first, when he makes the phone call to Jodie Foster and then the beaver wakes up and is like, who are you talking to? Like, how <laughs> mentally, how is that happening? <laughs> that is like, that's like some session nine split, You know what he like, should do is he should stuff. sit on his hand so his hand goes to sleep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then the beaver is, like, can't move or he'll like talk with an impediment or something it's like well, my mouth feels so no or like he could buy like a syringe of drugs and like stick it in his hand how would that work Emily it would all... <laughs> it could numb his arm just like tourniquet his arm <laughs> So there's just like, oh, that's so gross. The idea, like, there's the beaver puppet, but there's like a rotting hand underneath. <laughs> it's just like idle hands. Oh, idle hands. Yeah. Thank you, Emily, for introducing that um, to our lives. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Devin Sawa had no problem cutting off his hand. Yeah, actually, he did it way faster. <laughs> he did it about as fast as Ash did it in Evil Dead too. He yeah. was like, get it out of here. Yeah, I think Walter needed Seth Green around. So what we're kind of settling on now is that Walter had Dr. Strangelove disease. <laughs> it, wasn't, it wasn't that his whole body was crazy. It was like he was depressed and then his arm had like Hitler inside of it. <laughs> Not Hitler, the beaver. It's different. No, I, maybe we can just say they're all an evil spirit. Yeah. It's, yeah. You, you know, poltergeist in his arm. <laughs> I'm the poltergeist, <laughs> and I'm here to fuck up your life. <laughs> yeah, you know what? If Steve Carell had been in this movie, what accent do you think you would have given the beaver? It would, a southern accent? It would not have been an Australian accent, because yeah. that is 100% Mel Gibson leaning on his own Australian yeah. accent. Like that's that's it was just that was the easiest voice for him to switch in between. And that's Emily had a look on her face like, wait, Mel Gibson's Australian? Yeah. No, I was trying to think I thought the I thought the accent was British. <laughs> it's no it works a line. I'm wrong. I mean uh, dare I be racist, but British people and Australian people vaguely similar in a lot of ways. Yeah, but the accent <laughs> by being like super racist. For, well, yeah, for but, the accent to me, it just didn't. It just sounded like an accent where I didn't place it anywhere. I the thing for me that makes me assume it's Australian besides Mel Gibson is the oi, I'm the beaver. Like that's like a very yeah. much like that's a stereotypically Australian. I was just vowels. thinking about Michael Caine. But that's Ma- wrong. Michael Caine. Michael, 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 but it's not Michael. It's Michael. Michael Caine. It's the, the, they live a puddly in you. It's a person like, boy. That's roughly what I'm trying to do. So this movie cost, do you want to guess how much it cost? I saw it. You saw it? Did you already see Emily? I have no idea, but I don't really have a good reference. It cost $21 million to make this movie. What did they spend the money on? It did look like high budget. Lights? Lights. Yeah. Do we have any kind of study showing what demographics went to see this movie and paid? <laughs> I'm going to bet anyone who had a membership at an art house film yeah, theater. Yeah, I went because I worked at an art house film theater. <laughs> and everyone I went with worked there, so we but all they said for free. That, but do you know how much money this made? It Two cost, million. cost $21 million, made 
Less than one million. Oh, man. Oh, I thought I was being major with my two million guests. Major financial loss for Jodie yeah. Foster. But again, she'll always have work. Yeah. Yeah. So She's like Barry Levinson, where she's just so in that she can just fuck up. She really already bad. got a Lifetime Achievement Award at the Golden Globes. Yeah, and she has two Oscars, so yeah. It's... Yeah, she just, like, uses a rake in her front yard to comb all the money. People <laughs> <laughs> throw over her fence. <laughs> Maybe. She uses her two Oscars as, like, bookends to hold all of her. She's like, oh, those old things. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she, I haven't gotten one of those in quite a while. <laughs> what did she get her Oscars for? The Accused and Silence of the Lambs. Oh. Which Silence of the Lambs for sure is really deserved. I haven't seen The Accused, but I know that's the movie where she gets raped on a pinball machine. By like five guys, <gasps> so they oh. probably probably it was hard to not remember her performance in that movie when Oscar time came. Wow, I have not seen that movie. I don't yeah. know if I will now. Yeah, sounds not fun to watch. No, it's like it's yeah, it's like a civil rights movie. I read like she gets raped and uh, Kelly McGillis is the lawyer who has to like prosecute all these like I think they're like Southern good old boys. That raped her. It's, yeah, you, you get it. It's basically, like, you've seen the equivalent of that movie. Yeah, um, but it was in first. real life. Yeah. Yeah, in real life, basically. Uh, other things I learned, uh, Mel Gibson is bipolar in real life. Yep. <laughs> and did you know that he has a horseshoe kidney, which means that his two kid- kidneys are connected and act as one? Oh, no. I had yeah. no idea. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? Yeah. Weird. Yeah. That is weird. I didn't even know that was Do you a think thing, this honestly. movie was at all therapeutic for him? I don't know. Because it was filmed right before all that shit came out about him, so maybe? I My favorite part that he did as himself was pour vodka on the TV to help the... <laughs> to help David Carradine, yeah. Yeah, David Carradine, he needed a drink. Also, then... David Carradine in a scene where someone hangs themselves, oh. <laughs> or tries to at least. Wah, wah. David Carradine succeeded. Hanging himself. Yeah. With but after... using his hand as a beaver. <laughs> <laughs> Nailed it. So dark. Yeah. Cool. Um, I found out that originally it wasn't supposed to be Jennifer Lawrence as the graffiti valedictorian. Who was it? Kristen Stewart. Oh, yeah, but she had to do Twilight, I bet. Yeah. Because her and Jodie Foster worked together in Panic Room. Oh, yeah. All right, that makes sense. So she was like, hey, little girl, want to be in my next movie? Yeah, well, I mean, Jennifer Lawrence is way better for this type of thing, because Jennifer oh, yeah. Lawrence is easier to empathize with than Kristen Stewart, but God, I'm so glad like Kristen I, Stewart is, like, starting to break out of that I've got to say, in this movie, I kept looking at Jennifer Lawrence and being like, oh my God, she's so beautiful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, the, she's she is beautiful, she's the valedictorian, she's secretly a skilled artist. Her fucking character <laughs> is nuts. Like, like yeah. you really but hate... She's so I hate, tortured. I hate that, because the movie does try to equivocate it, because she did, uh, like, years ago, lost a family member. And they don't ever go out of their way to name the family member or tell us how she lost him. Yeah. So it must not be that important. But it apparently destroyed their family to the degree where, like, when Jennifer Lawrence gets arrested the second time with Anton Yelkin for doing art, and her mom shows up, her mom looks, like, as depressed as Mel Gibson does, and she's like, I can't. I can't go through this again. Where it's like, your fucking daughter is perfect. Your daughter yeah. is like, she's not losing her valedictorianship because of this. Uh, all she was caught doing at most was 
like spray painting rest in peace Brian which is like <laughs> I imagine even the toughest police are going to see a, a a pretty white teenager doing that and at most be like all right pay a fine like no one is this is not a life ruining yeah. thing for her character or paint over it or, or paint whatever. over something like this is easily dealt with and on top of that she is the valedictorian who's definitely going to go to whatever college she wants to and at most what has to happen with her character is she has to have a shift in perspective whereas like walter black has to overcome it's, it's, clinical depression do you think the screenwriter was writing a movie about like a teenager who didn't relate to his dad and he met this valedictorian who was a secret artist and then he was also writing this movie about this mentally ill guy who speaks to people through the beaver and so he was like well why don't i just combine them because it does not feel like those two plot lines should be in the same movie i think and this is um, tough for me to say because i don't really know the writer i can't remember the, other things the writer is kyle killen and he has like literally written this no. was his first big movie and he's written tv and that's like pretty much it he's writing a movie coming out soon but it's yeah. The thing that shook me really... I think the only famous person in it is, like, Willem Dafoe. The thing that shook me early on, or is, like, what is this like, is... It reminds me of, like, a horrible, uh, horribly miscalculated attempt at something like Miranda July Whimsy. It is, like, what it seems to be written as. Because of how not only Or, is like, it... Lars and the Real Girl. No, I mean specifically Miranda July. Because Lars and the Real Girl is is like kind of trying to be set in the real world because everyone's really weird. Like they feel weird about his relationship with the doll. And then, but in the end they're also like, you, okay, this is happening. We'll be your friend, but we're going to be your friend getting you to be with a human. There are woman. also real people in the world who have, um, attributed relationships to yeah. sex dolls. Yeah. It's like, it's, yeah. it's more believable. Whereas this, like <laughs> right from the start, there's all the weird stuff with like the, like the CG grasshopper in the swimming pool and um, every single thing that is a symbol in the Anton Yelkin storyline where he like smashes his head on the wall and eventually causes like a hole to open up to outside or he has that list of post-it notes. Those are all like the type of things that people who hate Miranda July movies would say Miranda July movies are where it's just like these like symbols that are so cutesy and on point that mm. it's just like what the fuck is this but Miranda July has like a, the right tone for it where it's like she's a better story writer and it's it's it like he, she uses those symbols for like much deeper more personal emotions and this movie is about the emotions that people have but it doesn't make those emotions personal it is like makes them very nebulous like depression is very nebulous yeah well and the beaver like, the, anger is nebulous the and, beaver if you take it literally as a treatment for depression the beaver is forget your old life well that's what i'm saying it's that's why i made the alcohol comparison earlier because yeah. it's like it's clearly supposed to be like it's a just thing as destructive it's just as destructive but it's well, all these, it, it, like, it doesn't try to, it shows that opening montage where he's like, he tried everything, and he's at, like, a drum circle for his depression, and then it shows him, like, self-flagellating with a belt, where it's like, yeah. those are totally absurd examples, and they're presented, like, they're presented in a subtle way that almost makes it, like, 
listen, this is how desperate he is with his depressions. He's tried even these things. And so it doesn't really, like, present a world where it's like, he tried drum circle, it didn't work. He tried uh, this, it didn't work. He tried the beaver, and that kind of worked. It doesn't, like, make it line up like that. It makes it seem way like blatantly different and there's you know what another good screenplay would have also set up why walter needed the beaver yeah because it, it, it just makes it like he when he picks it out of the dumpster you're like we don't, under, we don't understand him enough to be like oh i get why he would grab it it's just like oh the plot this is how the screenplay decided oh, he there's finds the, the beaver. character yeah. okay we get yeah. it now because, yeah. like, have you ever thrown, have you ever been depressed and thrown something in the garbage and then saw something in the garbage and dug it out? Like, that's if you're going to put that in a movie where it's, like, a part of a character, like, a movie that's very psychological and you're going to have someone do something like that, then it, you got to at least have it in a way where you can imagine yourself doing it. And yeah. I can't imagine grabbing, like, a wet, smelly puppet out of the garbage <laughs> when I'm already in a bad mood. <laughs> Life can't get much worse, I no. guess. Or if he's gonna do something like that, he's gonna go way weirder with it. Like, like he has sex with the puppet and then like tries to kill himself. <laughs> yeah, I wonder puppet. how. I wonder if he masturbates with the hand that's not the puppet. Yeah, I wonder. Like, or the puppet's like, yeah. <laughs> oh, <laughs> <ew>. <laughs> Sorry, I, I did a hand motion for that audience, but. You've been all about imagining the sexual side <laughs> yeah. of this. Yeah, it's, yeah because like said, none of it makes sense. It's, he has it for a month and a half, and their relationship is rekindled. And they openly show them having sex in the movie, so it's not like... And it looks like the only, at least for me, the only reason that Jodie Foster's relationship with Walter rekindles is because he's showing an interest in their son again. Yeah. There's like a ton of like boner scenes where he's like hanging out with her, her son, their son, and she's like... Oh, I'm so happy my son and my husband are together. But neither of them really care about the older son. Well, you know, Anton is just, he's a lost cause because he didn't get into his Ivy League school. Yeah. Can you go to Brown? Yeah, yeah. he's going to go Not Brown. 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 And Anton is scared of all his similarities that are the most vague things like sweats and sleeps. <laughs> sleeps. <laughs> he also, that he sweats. His al- father sweated. Also, one of the similarities was that he that his uh, hates his own father, which is like such an Burroughs of a thing to not do. Is like I don't want to be like my father, and my father hated his father. So, so, I so because I hate my father, I can't hate my father. <laughs> so that was like oh, it's like Star Wars, and then he lo- lo- loses his hand. Yeah, oh man. Oh man, Emily! <laughs> yeah, that's the only... It's pretty yeah. good. Porter, I'm still your father. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but the beaver's not his father. That's true. But that's no, the beaver's like... the Darth Vader. He takes over yeah. his father. Oh man, that comparison just keeps working. <laughs> I'm Welcome. the Vader. <laughs> I'm the Vader. <laughs> <laughs> um, my, so Emily, you pointed out your favorite thing that Mel Gibson does. In this movie, my one of my favorite is when he pulls out the beaver tux. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we yeah we talked a lot about that one that happened this time. But so okay, just to contextualize, uh, I'm, there's after like a month and a half of Walter doing uh, this. It's is it their wedding anniversary? Yeah, yeah. yeah so twentieth. Mel, Mel Gibson and Jodie Foster's characters wedding are celebrating their twentieth wedding anniversary, and she's gotten dressed. She's in this like. 
uh, elegant black dress. And LBD, as they say. LBD. And he, <laughs> uh, Walter is putting on a suit, and he looks classy, and he has the beaver puppet on. <laughs> and, uh... And she, she's like, I have been patient. I want this dinner to be just us. And he's like, oh, but sweetie, look. And he pulls out this beaver tuxedo for the beaver. Yeah. And so, first of all, did he have that made? Or yes, is it like... remember there was a scene where he was getting his wrist measured. Oh, yeah, that's right. And I was like, this is... I thought that... Is this? I was like, yeah, I figured it was He's like... Oh, the they're factory? I thought it was for the toy. Yeah, I thought it was something stupid like that where it's like, oh, for the toy for whatever reason has to be modeled off of the puppet. But yeah, I guess that also makes yeah. sense too. Either way, it's stupid. Either thing is stupid, so both are, are equally viable. How would but, the beaver wear pants? Yeah, that doesn't make any sense. The beaver couldn't wear pants because his arm... Unless it would the just be an arm hole. Wouldn't it have, yeah. like, a piece of Velcro on the back that you just, like, put it around your arm? Something, yeah, but it's, like, on a hanger, which implies that it's, like... It looks too small. It looked way too small. Opinion. It looked like there was, like, an American boy doll that they took that <laughs> suit off of. Oh, yeah. All right. Take it easy, baby. Uh, they... The, again, I, what I said when we watched it was... How fucking crazy is he where he proposes that for his 20th wedding anniversary? Because it's, like, again, it really gets, what is the nature of his mental illness? Where this is yeah, 100% is, acceptable to him. His, why is he so depressed? Well, they kind of suggest, based on Jennifer Lawrence, uh, his, Probably because his wife end, sucks. Well, it's some, they seem to suggest the idea is that he is so depressed because once he got depressed, everyone was like, well, get the fuck out of here. Like, her, their relationship fell apart, and his son was like, I don't want to be like you anymore. And then the other son was just too young for anyone to give a shit about. Yeah. And so it's like, because it seems to sound something like that, but that does not explain why he's depressed. Unless, if we take it even further back, that he's depressed because he inherited this company as CEO, and he knows he's not good enough, and... He knows everyone thinks he's bad at his job, and so he got depressed about that. And his family were like, "Well, you're depressed." Yeah, so. we haven't mentioned that Cherry Jones is in this movie. Yeah, Cherry Jones. But I don't know. Because at most, if, if we really read into it, that would be the the most setup we get is that he is possibly depressed because he knows to some degree that he doesn't deserve the position, uh, his his like work position that he has. But that really is so thin. For the level of depression that he falls, depression and mental illness that he falls into. Yeah, and and it, I'm not saying that you have to have like a reason to be depressed. No, that's not how depression works. But the they don't contextualize like why he needs the beaver or what his depression is is like. Well, I actually is, I thought it was implied at one point, maybe when they're having dinner, that. Walter's father committed suicide, so I just assumed maybe maybe I'm making this up. Did he? Oh, I missed that. Because he mentioned the little kid Henry asked about his grandfather. Yeah, he had a, an accident and he died. Is what they and said. And I yeah. thought that was they were covering because he didn't want to say suicide because for that him makes to sense. mention his father's suicide is scary for oh, him. Oh, so now this movie so. plays into the game. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> yeah, uh, <laughs> I, and then maybe so it's just like genetics bad. A history of self-violence, I guess, yeah. is also... This also means that it plays into Igby Goes Down, so... Weird. Yeah, that's a really old trope. Daddy like, issues. Yeah. I mean, every Wes Anderson movie and every Paul Thomas Anderson movie has daddy yeah. issues. So yeah, it's like a very easy go-to 
trope for this sort of thing. Yeah, this would be a fun Wes Anderson movie. Yeah, actually, if there's anybody who can pull up this movie, it would be Wes Anderson. It would yeah. be the desperate rewrite. But... Dude, Bill Murray as uh, Walter? Yeah. Or the people who did The Guest. Yes. Oh. Yeah, like it was like a really crazy psycho thriller. I would, I would love to see this movie as a horror movie. Yeah. Like the beaver, because it would be kind of like Chucky or a Child's Play, where it's like you know, a it'd be like comes to life and like. Tries <laughs> what to that kill would people. be like is you know how like that Jack Frost movie where Michael Keaton is yeah. the snowman. Do you yeah. remember how like right after that, there's the horror version where Jack Frost is this evil snowman? Yeah, it's like, it'd be exactly like that. Is Henry Rollins in that one too. <laughs> Hopefully, Henry Rollins is the beaver. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the beaver. I'm gonna kick your fucking ass. <laughs> Yeah, do you think they'd change the animal? Honey badger. <laughs> <laughs> the honey badger. Don't give a shit. It's just like, ah! <laughs> it just eats me. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Maybe yeah. become like a porcupine. Just punch people. <laughs> it's like Wolverine, you basically. Pork a pine. Porcupine. I said porcupine. I thought you said porcupine. Porcupine. <laughs> a little porcupine. <laughs> What the hell going on there, porcupine man? Yeah, that's how the first person dies in the horror version is the person who has the puppet. They go to a gas station, and the gas station attendant comes out and goes, What that you got there on your hand? You got that damn there, porcupine? And then he gets like, porcupine needles shot in his neck. We can make this movie. <laughs> what was I crying about during the movie? Oh, God. I can't remember, but it was really... We made you laugh. It was another on the blind joke. <laughs> we made so many of those. We made so many during this episode. Yeah. Also, um... Terry Gross. Yeah. I just saw your note. Terry Gross. Terry Gross movie. is in this movie. And she at least escapes better from this than Jon Stewart or Matt Lauer. Because Matt Lauer doesn't ask follow-up questions, and Jon Stewart really shouldn't. Not invited himself into being something so easily mocked, but Terry Gross is at least trying to be like, "Listen, this doesn't make any sense." <laughs> like, yeah, her question was, "So we're on the radio, and why are you talking as a puppet?" <laughs> no one yeah. can see you. Yeah, and his head is on the desk, <laughs> and she is not on NPR. Is- She's on. W H Y Y. That's her station. Y. That is her station. Yeah, okay. W H Y Y is out of Philadelphia. Okay, well then that makes sense. That's but like, still, like, still also very appropriate. I was like, how <laughs> dare you not know this about about Terry Gross? Fresh I, Air is produced by W H Y Y. Listen, as much as I respect Terry Gross, I have to admit that I've never actually listened to Fresh Air, <gasps> so <laughs> I, 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 right. I would not know those call letters. Oh my god! Listen to her. Uh, it's like W B Z from Chicago. Yeah, I listen, listen to her, Larry. Wilmore episode. All right. Yeah, that was just recently right. uh, great. All right. Just recently great, though. Is there anything else we got to mention about the beaver? Yeah, we need to talk about, speaking of Terry Gross asking why he's speaking as the beaver when they're on the radio, we need to talk about how the beaver narrates this movie. Yeah, okay. I did wonder about that uh, because... You were the one that brought it up. Yeah, I was just, it really was baffling to me to think about the fact that I, can you think of... Yeah, you pointed at my belly. Uh, sorry. Um, can, I couldn't think of another movie where the movie was narrated by, um, like, a... I don't want to say a delusion, but a character that doesn't exist. 
Like, a character that was Oh, there's a ton of movies like that. Isn't Nanny McPhee like that? (laughs) But that's like a fantasy Did this movie movie. even need narration? That's another thing, is it doesn't need narration, because most of what the beaver says doesn't actually, or like a better filmmaker or a better screenwriter could convey that information without. Uh, So the beaver doesn't really add anything. But also, it's like, what is the logic, in, in terms of like storytelling logic, what is the purpose of having the delusion be the narrator? Is to confuse it, us. I'm, this yeah. whole movie is to confuse us. Yeah, it's just, it's just, a re, it's, again, it sets up the idea well, it, that it, the beaver is a good thing. Yeah, like, yeah. that's yeah. who we're supposed to relate to. Yeah, because it's kind of, does narration usually speak for the audience as well as to, like, this is what... Well, as they point out in adaptation, narration is usually, like, a lazy tool. Yeah. But it's usually used to tell the audience something that you can't convey visually. <laughs> you can't convey visually, like, say, a shot of a letter from a college that says you are no longer accepted yeah, to the college. <laughs> yeah. Or it's At kind least of it used... didn't do the, the cutaway eight yeah. months or, later. Yeah. Or it's used as, like, internal monologue. So if the character is, like, thinking something but not saying it on screen. That's how it's used in adaptation, which it's actually, like, purposeful in adaptation. Yeah, well, it's it's helpful, too, when you do, yeah, from book to movie. Yeah, but this this is, like, it's, it's basically the narration is, like, a God's eye point of view. But the character that has the God's eye point of view is someone's delusion. Someone's like, someone's uh, second personality. Like, and so a character who is like, yeah, I, Walter was so depressed and his kid was like this, where it's like, okay, if he really was this depressed, did Walter know all the stuff about like his son? Like, okay, a perfect example is in the opening narration, the beaver mentions the thing about the post-its that, uh, like, he's like, yeah, uh, his son collects all this information about similarities so that he can unlearn all that. It's, like, one of the very first things that the movie gives us. Um, and then at the towards the very end of the movie, like, right before Walter cuts off his hand is when Walter finds out that information. And it would have had so much more impact if we didn't know what it was and then we see him end. under see the find this out and be like oh my son has this list of similarities because he doesn't want to be like me that would have hit harder but instead it's like why so if he didn't know until then though why would the beaver know this the beaver uh, is god yeah and so cuz after the beaver ha- is killed by so getting he, his hand so he god's, ascends to heaven and then tells the so story so god's dead God is dead, but God, no, God is now, it's basically, I guess now, the beaver is Jesus, the beaver is ascended to heaven and is now telling this story to the angels, so that the angels... So we have now said that the beaver is Hitler, demon, and also God, (laughs) Jesus. Yeah. (laughs) But I heard God's not dead. Or God... He's pining for the fields. (laughs) Also, does that... The idea that the beaver is God relate to the company being called Jericho. Jericho. Yeah, uh, that's that is just a, a totally baffling thing. Do you where... think the walls came a tumbling down after this uh, movie ended? The walls of the beaver, of maybe? The Jericho. <laughs> well, after this, she uh, Jerry Jones did take over. She went from being vice president. So in a way, uh, those walls came tumbling down. But I really. 
I don't know. I don't know the symbolism of the Jericho part of the Bible no, well enough. The Jer- so Jericho had these this build like fortress like walls, yeah. and all you had to do was play music out of your trumpets loudly and walk in a circle around the city, yeah. and then the walls came tumbling down. There's no reason for it to be but called is, that. Is that movie. is the metaphor that he, like his instrument is the beaver, and he plays the beaver's music loud enough that <laughs> the walls of Jericho collapse? <laughs> 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 is like. I genuinely don't know because all of the symbolism in the movie is well, like that. Where I also it's wonder, so open to because it's not Je- the the company's not called Jericho; it's called Jerry Co. As in, like Jerry Company. Yeah, yeah. And so, who I'm I'm wondering but why like, name is that? Jerry? Yeah, his dad. Wait, actually, yeah. Okay, I I had to look, but. The one time they do say what Mel Gibson's dad's name is, is, is when the little kid says, you, you mean Grandpa Jerry from the graveyard? <laughs> In yeah, reference to Grandpa is, Jerry's grave. Oh, so, so it, it is his dad. It is his dad. So there might not actually so be. So maybe the metaphor is that he was knocking down the walls of his depression about his dad having an accident. <laughs> Yeah, maybe... His dad is the walls of Jericho. And if he just inherited that job two years ago... <laughs> Emily can't handle it. But okay, no, he just got that... He They said he got the job two years ago, so his dad must have, like, committed suicide... And then he he got the job, and everyone was like, "You fucking suck. You're not your dad. Nepotism. And so he sunk into the depression, which would be the years that uh, Anton Yelkin refers to, where it's like uh, he's yeah. It's been I've been waiting years for you to do this. Yeah. And so, okay, I guess that's the chronology. Wow, of, like, we've thought so hard. We thought this. yeah, but the it it took us what fucking five or six viewings to figure out. He's depressed because his dad killed himself? <laughs> Jesus Christ. It should be so much easier to have that information presented. Yeah. yeah, maybe we should get to our teachable moments. Okay, yeah. Unless, do you have anything extra you wanted to add? Check my notes. I wrote Anton Head Smash. <laughs> yeah. We have been addressed. Yeah. <laughs> R.I.P. Oh, I um another reason why I really really had hope that the Beaver was good because he wrote or he said today will set you free as the first day of the Beaver, and uh, it did the exact opposite. It put him in Beaver prison. Yeah. <laughs> and he had to put the Beaver in a memory do box. Do you mean he, he got put in a dam? He a was beaver, damned beaver forever. <laughs> beaver damned to hell. <laughs> that should be the name of the horror version of the series. Beaver damned to hell. But damned is spelled with two M's. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Let's please write that movie. Beaver damned to hell. All right. Beaver colon or, damned to hell. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, yeah. There you go. That's the sci-fi original title for this movie. I would totally watch that oh, movie. Yeah. Well, there's a movie called All right, Zombie. People, up there's with a movie called Zombieavers already, yeah. so might have gotten beaten. Yeah. Heavy All right. Sigh for Zombieavers. Heavy sigh leads into teachable. Moment. Oh, I didn't think about this. Before. All right. Well, we'll give you a moment to think about. I it. think all of us can agree that as a universal teachable moment, as a director, you have to set a tone for your movie. Oh yeah. And that doesn't happen in this movie. And sometimes toneless movies are really fascinating because... You can project they, onto it. You can project onto it, but, like, also 
they sometimes they'll tell like an absolutely crazy story without tone or with too much tone and you're just like what is going on like the one example i would think of which we're gonna discuss in another episode is nurse betty yeah (laughs) nurse betty is like one of the craziest movies and it's partially because the tone is like all over the place it's partially like this gangster thriller partially like this romantic comedy there's characters who are really evil and there's characters who are very naive and it's just like such a mess yeah but this movie i would i wouldn't say it's necessarily toneless but i would say it's very hollywood it doesn't pick a tone yeah jody foster's style from what I've seen of the movies I've watched of hers, it's like very commercial. It's so clean and like every shot in this movie was really well lit, mm-hmm. really in focus. It was pretty. It was very good pretty, colors. but it looked kind of like a good commercial. Yeah. It didn't have like an artistic quality to it. It just looked like it, visually you knew what you're supposed to be looking at. And yeah, there wasn't a ton of people. Outside and, of the beaver, there isn't a ton of personality in this movie. Yeah. Well, and, uh, I guess what my teachable moment was is just that kind of this ties into something we've said about we said about butterfly effect but it's this is a a higher quality version of the same thing and it's really rare that you see this but it's an example the beaver is an example of a movie where besides the writing and directing pretty much everything and everyone is working really hard and doing a good job yeah like your every performance uh based besides the material they're given the performances are pretty solid yeah they're like I, I, like we said the reason like jennifer lawrence and anton yelkin's scenes are interesting despite how terrible their characters are written and what their storylines are is because of how inherently likable they make the characters like yeah. you just instantly as soon as as soon as they're introduced, you get what their characters are. Jennifer Lawrence establishes her character more or less with like a look in a slow motion shot, and you're like, "Yes, I get, I understand this character, what it's going to be." And Anton Yelkin is like the same he is in everything, which is reliable. He's very reliable. He hits it right away. Mel Gibson. He was reliable. Yeah, it was. Rest in peace. But Mel Gibson, and obviously, there's a lot of negative things we can and did say about Mel Gibson, but. <laughs> He, it takes it, it. This is definitely a tricky performance with him, and the problem is not that he gives a bad performance. It's that he was never told to not give this performance for this material. Yeah, he 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 gives a very good serious. De- uh, performance where de- the depression is very real, and like I said, the moments that work the best for me as like real a real movie are the scenes in which his depression is foregrounded. And uh, you just, like, I, I, I can imagine many people with depression could relate to those, like, fragments of scenes where the bleakness of the depressed mind is, like, foregrounded. Yeah, but um, if you're depressed, there are better movies to watch about Oh, depression. absolutely. Yeah. That's what we're saying about ordinary people. I'm just saying, like, you can see the reality in that performance. Yeah. And then Jodie Foster... Or just watch, watch Young Adult. Young Adult is also great. There's a lot of really great movies about depression, uh, so you wouldn't need to. Um, or just watch season two of You're or, the Worst. Or if we're gonna go the artsy choice, yeah, that that too. The artsy choice would say again is Two Days One Night of like oh, what that a movie. What is a, so great. An absolutely vivid and a, again a movie that 
actually does have a happy ending, even if it is a much a more emotionally Emily, complex happy ending. Have you seen Two Days One Night? No, you it's would really love great. it. I cried. It's I the last cried. movie I cried during. And I, I like, cried during most. I went. I cried you about love twenty minutes French. into the movie. I started crying. Oh, Marion yeah, Cotillard. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yes, I know what the premise is. It's so Oh good. my god, there's just one there's this one scene I think about it and I just start to choke up. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's a really it's genuinely a beautiful It's a movie. it's a movie that makes you remember that people can be good. Yeah. That's nice. Well, yeah. still uh, fully believing in the the truth that there are people who are bad. Yeah. Like it like it it, it somehow fully represents the entire scale of human empathy. In like um, an hour and a half, something like that. It's it's, it's a wonderful it's amazing. Movie. It's a really just like one of the best movies I've ever seen. But that's a better <laughs> depiction of depression than uh, the Beaver. <laughs> but and then what I was gonna say about Jodie Foster, because that's the only really other performance that matters in this movie, is that her part sucks. She it's like she has like a really shitty like thankless role of like the, the crying wife, basically, like the wife who's like. I mean, it's not like a nagging wife or anything like that, but it's like she's not as bad as Nia Verdalos. Yeah, well, no, but I mean, she's but. but she's like she could be a pretty much anybody. Like yeah. Jodie Foster didn't have to play her. Yeah, it, it, that's the the weak part about the role is that it's like it's it's not it's the least memorable part of like an already kind of ill defined movie, but she's still not terrible in it. She's still trying. Uh, she just, it does not have the artistic ability to make something out of this role. And, but still, my point, so my point stands that if you do watch this movie, kind of marvel at how all these people can try so hard and succeed and still be doomed to be in a bad movie based on a screenplay that was written years before they met. And, uh, and then the directing also can like hamper that further. But, like, this is a really great example of it, just like Butterfly Effect, of a movie that the problems are things that a good a good crew can't really take care of. Like, if you have structural logic problems in your screenplay and you don't hammer those out or you don't have an artistic style that makes them not matter, then that's going to damn your movie. A good performance can't seem, save a bad scene. An inherently bad scene. That's what I would say. Yeah. Ellen? Do you have something you want to teach? Um, that if you are rich and famous enough, you can get even this screenplay produced. You can do you can do anything if you are rich and white in Hollywood. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but she's a woman. Yeah. I think it's probably because she's an insider. Yeah. Lifetime but, insider, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like with Ron Howard. Ron Howard's a redhead. And he got to <laughs> do whatever he wanted. Oh, slamming on redheads, <laughs> no, huh? It just, that was the only... I was trying to think of a real example. <laughs> More like Sofia Coppola. Yeah, okay. There we go. And she She's an insider because of the nepotism thing. But at very least, she she's is an artist. She's like... Yeah, I mean, Lost in Translation is another movie that I would call, like... Um, I would say is a movie about depression to some degree also. Yeah. Another masterpiece. Uh, but the, both of them were able to make the movies they made because of their uh, strong connections. The fact that if somebody was sexist against either of them, there's a bunch of other men, bunch of men that would yeah. get angry for them. Yeah, yeah. yeah I bet Jodie Foster just called Robert De Niro and she's like, yo, I need you to go yell at someone yeah. for me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Tell everybody. Or even Mel Gibson. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'd be like, okay. I, I have Mel Gibson on speed down. He will be at your house. Mel, <laughs> tell everybody you want to chop your hand off at the end. <laughs>
Oh. I already did it. <laughs> Mel Gibson said, like, a prosthetic metal hand. I, I now, brought... there's a good opportunity to try method acting. I think they did say that um, at some point they did want Mel Gibson to play Mad Max in Mad Max Fury Road. And the I made, I could be mistaken, but I think they said that... The reason they ultimately went with Tom Hardy is because they needed... Because he's sexier? Well, he's sexier, but they just did not want that distraction. Because the movie is not about Mad Max. It's about Charlize Theron's character. And so if you have this big star who, on top of that, has all this other sexist controversy to it, and then try to put it in a movie that is, like, very feminist, it is going to distract from it. And I'm glad they took... He wasn't in it because Mad Max Fury Road works so well because it has nothing distracting from its it's like the the streamlined quality of that plot and the focus like just allows it moves so fast it allows I it feel to like there would have been a roadblock if yeah and it allows it to be feminist yeah. without having to be like listen we gotta explain it's just like no it is feminist like yeah. women it was a trap to be, for yeah. men you guys it was a trap <laughs> but for i men. i want to say something really quick so we kind of slammed on Jodie Foster quite a bit as a director yeah and I want to say that as much as I think Mel Gibson is mostly a terrible person yeah I personally think Apocalypto is one of the best directed movies I've ever seen it is so good and it's so it's so it much is such a good movie only and actually it really speaks to I, the way I always thought of it and that, I try to forget that Mel Gibson directed it, but it's such a, it's like, how did that movie ever get made? But, well, and, uh, the thing, well, and it got made because of Passion of the Christ, which is crazy. Like, yeah. he used the money from Passion of the Christ to make an action movie set in Mayan culture that's almost entirely in, like, if not Mayan, then, like, a, a similar dialect from that era. And they actually had, a, the screenplay is written fully in that dialect like they got Mm. someone who knew the language and on top of that it's this epic it's over two hours long with nobody famous uh it's all set outdoors it's like everything there's no like hollywood casting no and well and that's and the thing the the way i always remember it is like you kind of said you feel like guilty even like complimenting him but i think it was like two or three years ago spike lee released a list of like what his, like, top 250 movies were. Like, the movies that he's like, this would be my film school. And he put Apocalypto on it. Yeah. And well, so yeah, like, I read a, an yeah. interview recently of Brad Pitt where he was like, man, Apocalypto is really great. And actually, Robert Duvall considers Apocalypto one of <laughs> his favorite movies. It's like a, it's like a pretty... Like, it's, there's, all, everyone we just listed is, like, a, a white, oh, not a white guy, but, because uh, Spike Lee is not white. But. Because it kind of goes through, like, universal uh, human experience. Yeah, it's an adventure movie, and the, but the adventure is so thoroughly taken out of modern culture that, like, oh, and also, like, because the, the guy has his whole thing, and the woman's plotline still involves, like, taking care of children and things, but she's, like, in that pit, and she has to climb yeah. out of it while still, like, holding the, like, the, she has to keep the children from drowning while also, like, climbing this, like, vine while, like, the wa- the floodwaters are rising, and um, it, like, it, it has, like, I'm, it, there's definitely some gender role stuff going on there that's, that's a part of the culture that's, that's just part of the culture but it also takes it so thoroughly out of like mainstream american culture into a like something that's foreign yeah, enough that it allows watch, we gotta watch it again we do it allows those tropes yeah, to have Emily new too. much more exciting life than they would otherwise and because he had that money and had that power he fought to make it something that 
most people would never risk, or you could only get made in a different country because people in the United States usually don't give a shit about something like that. And Apocalypto, as far as I remember, is a success. It was a financial success. It, it won, was a critical success. It, it was a critical success. I think it won a couple Oscars, or is at least nominated for a couple like technical Oscars. Yeah, Mel Gibson. Mel Gibson is as good of a director as he is a shitty person, and <laughs> the vice versa <laughs> for Jodie Foster. Jodie Foster is as bad of a director as she is a good person. <laughs> but maybe she'll get better. I mean, I will say I enjoyed Money Monster much more than The Beaver. Yeah, and Money Monster was crazy. As far as tone, again, like it made no tonal sense, but it was so enjoyable to yeah. watch. I would always see a Jodie Foster movie because I know because of the way in which she's a poor director, it guarantees an interesting movie. She's not going to make like, I'm trying to think of like, like it's not going to be like Jurassic World where you're it's like, boring. you're just bored because like, it's just, there's no idea how to actually Talk, but you're just like, telling, like, the same story over and yeah. over again. Yeah, Jodie Foster is, like, trying to do something really interesting, and it just is, like, she, she is not she, skilled enough, but she's trying. She's would, really trying hard. I wouldn't say she's not skilled enough. I would say she hasn't found her niche yet. Yeah, but that's a big... She's, I don't know, she's been directing long enough. Because now she, 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 she did a family <laughs> drama. She did... The Beaver, which I don't know. A family drama. I guess family <laughs> drama. And then Money Monster is like an action thriller. But it's like a political, yeah, satire, political action thriller comedy. Set, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I wonder what she's going to do next. I don't know, but I'll see it because even if it's as big of a mess as The Beaver is, it'll be like, oh, whoa, I can't, I did not know that this was going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> it's there. Yeah, so I guess and that's another teachable lesson you could take. A bonus teachable lesson is that. Jodie Foster is the type of director that is not going to bore you. If you only wait, if you wait to watch her movies until they're on Netflix, it's, you're going to have a great time. You're going to have a great afternoon, get drunk with your friends and heckle it and you will not regret it. You're not going to, as long as you don't expect to be blown away by the next great masterpiece, you really can't be bored. So would we, as a group, collectively recommend The Beaver? Oh, absolutely. I would. would. Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. We've all said terrible things about it now, but I would recommend it. I think I would recommend it as, like, a one-off, but I don't think I'd tell someone that they should watch it more than once. Yeah. Well, that's really their call. (laughs) Yeah, I know it's their call, but it's not... I I don't think the more we've watched it, the more I've enjoyed it. Yeah, I, I feel like I understand it the more I... I, I understand what it was going for. The, it, the first time is the best time because... Surprises! The, the, yeah, the surprise, the whiplash, uh, it, that is much more prominent the first time. But yeah, it doesn't really deepen itself. It's not like something like, say, Roar, where you rewatch it and you're like, whoa, I had no... I didn't even notice this thing. It's like, no, you know, you pretty much notice it. It just, you figure out what they were going for the more you're exposed to yeah. it. Yeah. Alright, was that it? Is that all you all you got for yeah. the beaver? Alright. The giving it up to the beaver. Give it up to the beaver. I think Leave we, it to the beaver. I think we as a society should give it up to the beaver. Yeah. Yeah. Right, Emily? <laughs> oh, of course. Church of the Beaver. <laughs> the beaver is our new Jesus figure. Our Lady Sacred Beaver. The beaver is our new Trump figure. I don't know. I would vote for the beaver for president instead of Trump. The beaver will build a beautiful dam. And it will be the most beautiful dam (laughs) they've ever seen. It would would have to build it between here and Canada, though. It would would build it on the Rio Grande. (laughs) Uh, Or the Mississippi.
No, that's not where the immigrants <laughs> <Yeah>. are. <laughs> those, those damned Eastern immigrants. <laughs> <laughs> you don't know where the beaver's gonna go. All those Tennessee people ruining Nebraska. Get them out of here! All those showboats going up and down the river. <laughs> Gotta keep those showboats No mo showboat. <laughs> Alright. This has been The Secret Cinema. I'm Paolo. I'm Carrie. I'm Emily. Thanks. Thanks, Thanks Emily. Thanks, Emily. And thank you, listener, for listening. Bye. Bye. The Secret Cinema is produced and edited by Paolo Corona. All theme songs were performed and recorded by Ricardo Ortiz. Any additional music or samples come from the film covered on this week's episode. All logos and artwork created by Carrie Chaney. You can follow Carrie on Instagram at Carrie Saw This and see more of her artwork at www.carriechafee.com. You can watch Paolo's short films at vimeo.com slash paolocarone or read more of his ramblings about film at letterbox.com slash paolocarasmus. Secret Cinema is a commentary and criticism podcast, and its use of film dialogue and film music for illustrative purposes falls under the fair use provisions of U.S. copyright law. Thanks again for listening. Production of Larry Lathan Productions. All rights reserved.